section sixteen of six radical thinkers by john mccun this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter four the anti-democratic radicalism of thomas carlyle part three it is not easy to decide to which of these two types carlyle leans so fervid is he in his admiration of greatness in all modes from norse odin to english samuel johnson from the divine founder of christianity to the withered pontiff of encyclopedism as the years went on his sympathies seemed to have intensified toward the rugged brindleys arkwrights watts and to the captains of industry from whom he looked for so much it has been truly said that it is one of the striking contrasts of his character that though by choice and disposition a spectator of life he was always in his strongest sympathies a man of action yet this last point must not be pressed unduly too many readers are carried away by the well-worn designation of carlyle as the prophet of work so he is there is no watchword dearer to him than tools to the man not arms and the man or shirt frills and the man as he reminds us and it has actually been made matter of reproach that in urging mankind as the sum of the whole matter to do the duty that lies nearest to hand he would disastrously withdraw their energies from the more distant and less self-centred duties of citizenship it is the very criticism which characteristically mazzini passes upon him but there are two facts which go far to blunt its edge one is that work in the carlylean vocabulary is a wide word it includes as a memorable passage in sartorisartus tells us the work for spiritual bread johnson and rousseau goethe and burns are among the workers hence the futility of the taunt that carlyle preached a gospel of work and never did anything himself the fact of the matter here is not that carlyle failed to live up to his own gospel of work but that his critics should learn to interpret that gospel aright the second consideration is that in carlyle's tributes to practical workers even the most humble and illiterate it is never the mere work done that evokes his reverence in the great workers it is the insight the eye for fact and the firm faith that lay behind achievement in the humble unrecorded workers it is the doing of the work with fidelity as in the great taskmaster's eye few criticisms are further from the mark than the trite imputation that carlyle worshipped mere blind and brutal force this will become clearer when we remember that carlyle's entire practical teaching both in politics and ethics rested upon certain fundamental convictions which it is now time to proceed to consider this is the more important because there is a tendency in some quarters where it might have least been expected to stake carlyle's claims as a political writer upon the truth or otherwise of his definite prophecies about democracy it must have startled many students of his life to read the conditions on which his biographer is willing that his master's writings should be consigned to oblivion carlyle says mr froude like them that is the hebrew prophets believed that he had a special message to deliver to the present age whether he was correct in that belief 
and whether his message was a true message remains to be seen. He has told us that our most cherished ideas of political liberty, with their kindred corollaries, are mere illusions, and that the progress which has seemed to go along with them is a progress toward anarchy and social dissolution. If he was wrong, he has misused his powers. The principles of his teaching are false. He has offered himself as a guide on a road of which he has no knowledge, and his own desire for himself would be the speediest oblivion both of his person and his works. It is not necessary to adopt the funereal estimate. Carlyle himself, it is to be remembered, set but little store upon political prediction. What thing is foreseen, he asks, especially what man the parent of things? But quite apart from this, it is scant justice thus to judge a man of genius by the soundness or otherwise of what is, after all, but an application, however important, of a far wider doctrine. It would be nearer the truth to affirm that though all the political predictions which Carlyle ever penned were falsified, though he were proved wrong in his forecasts and Mill and Mazzini right, he would still remain one of the great political writers of the century. At the very least, he has done democracy the service of telling it of its faults, and who will venture to say that it does not need the telling? If Carlyle said many bitter things of his generation, so did Isaiah and Plato and Tacitus and Juvenal and Swift of theirs. This was part of his mission. By temperament and vocation, he was a satirist in politics. It little befits English society to complain of his flouts and flings, his mordant humor, his fierce invective, till it can feel with a clear conscience that it has ceased to deserve them. Let it rather lay to heart the injunction of the ancient cynic, associate with your enemy, he will be the first to tell you of your faults. For the words of a great satirist, instinct with genius and lit up by humor and pathos, do not lose their value because leveled against causes that are triumphant. It is just the hour of triumph that most needs the salutary whisper, Remember thou art mortal. And then the words of Carlyle are not powerful only to scathe and to destroy. The very ferocity of his indictment of democracy was born of a passionate perception of how much there was to be done. It was not simply the ineffectuality of democracy that he reviled. It was what he believed to be its impotence in the presence of great and urgent social ends and issues. And his championship of the ends remains whether they are to be attained by democratic government or by aristocratic despotism. Enough and to spare remains in his writings for the democratic spirit to feed upon and perpetually to renew its youth even when the whole combination service upon counts of heads be taken as read. For the democratic spirit is one thing, and democratic methods of government another. And though Carlyle did not love the second, few men have done more splendid service to the first. For the root and the fruit of democracy, what are they but the recognition of the worth dignity and possibilities of the individual life, however flickering and obscure. Carlyle joins hands with Mill and Mazzini here. He outdoes them. 
no writer in our literature it is safe to say has done more for this the essence of the democratic spirit than this sworn foe of political democracy it is not because of his toils that i lament for the poor we must all toil or steal howsoever we name our stealing what i do mourn over is that the lamp of his soul should go out that there should one man die ignorant who had capacity for knowledge this i call a tragedy were it to happen more than twenty times in a minute as by some computations it does this is carlyle's version of the education question what is to become of our cotton trade cried certain spinners when the factory act was proposed what is to become of our invaluable cotton trade the humanity of england answered steadfastly deliver me these rickety perishing souls of infants and let your cotton trade take its chance this is his case for factory legislation even in the nigger question that stone of stumbling and rock of offence to many a disciple it will be found that in treating the great cause of slave emancipation with scant respect and deplorable levity this is in part at any rate because his eyes were open to other things nearer home it is not to the west indies that i run first of all o brothers o sisters it is for these white women that my heart bleeds and my soul is heavy nor in these days of great cities and massed populations and imposing movements alike political and economic which threaten to dwarf to insignificance the transitory struggling individual life can democracy afford to reject still less to assail the man who even in his bitterest and most declamatory hour never forgot that there is the fifth act of a tragedy on every deathbed though it be a peasant's on a bed of heath it is something even more than this that beyond all writers of the nineteenth century carlyle has borne witness to the spirituality of the foundations upon which society rests it has been characteristic of this age to produce many writers and readers who having with or without proof satisfied themselves that society is an organism seem to think that no more remains to be said evolution has produced the organism the will of evolution if it have a will be done it is not enough for carlyle deeply prejudiced though he was against the teaching of the evolutionists and lamentably incapable of doing justice to darwin he was well aware none knew better that society is organic never has the subtlety of the ties that bind man to man been drawn to light with more telling and picturesque effect than in the chapter in sartor on organic filaments but he is not minded to rest content with biological analogies and evolutionary forces he takes a higher flight generation after generation takes to itself the form of a body and forth issuing from cimmerian night no heaven's mission appears but whence o heaven whither this is the question as he puts it in what is one of the greatest passages he ever wrote it is also the question he tries to answer not only in the context where he declares it is from mystery to mystery from god to god but in the vehement protest of all his writings from sartor onwards against the extrusion of spirit 
from explanation whether of the rise or of the fall of nations for carlyle's political doctrines are very far from being political only the politics of a higher region encompass him as emerson said and into that higher region the reader must follow him if he hopes to understand the grounds and significance of his teaching on even the most mundane affairs nor is the difficulty in following so great as it might appear from the fragmentary and disrupted form of his utterance suspicious though he was of all closely reasoned construction and all his life through much more concerned that ideas should be realized in life than that they should be systematized in thought it will be found that all his leading convictions are far enough from floating loose and incoherent this will appear if we proceed at once to ask what these ideas are at the root of all else lies the conviction intense unfaltering far-reaching of the mutability of the world of appearances no writer of any age has surpassed him in this not the hebrew psalmists nor plato nor marcus aurelius nor omer khayyam nor even spinoza himself great reasoning prophet of the unsubstantiality of all finite things for this conviction met carlyle at every turn the obscure annals of his quiet annandale countryside suggested it so did the hurrying crowds of the strand he never forgot it nor could forget it to look at all ordinary things was for him to look through them with an eye which even in the pride of life and the great tides of affairs detected the transitoriness of the whole falsely satisfying unsubstantial spectacle he tells us how one evening he passed through the little town of annan where years before he had been a schoolboy annan street had groups of prentice lads in it and maid servants in white aprons tom willison's shop-light was shining far up the street but tom himself i suppose is laid long since in the everlasting night or the everlasting day what he here saw in the unrecorded pathos of humble life he saw elsewhere on the larger scale on the broadest page of history as he reads it is written the same disillusioning message all things pass even the vastest of historic movements and the most gorgeous pageantries are after all what are they but shadows which come and go in frail and temporary substantiation across some more enduring background of life or nature which in its turn is itself to be engulfed by all devouring chronos it is so with your national wars your moscow retreats your sanguinary hate-filled revolutions they are all but the somnambulism of uneasy sleepers the dreaming which on earth we call life and so on the great procession moves from the little life and the unmarked death of a country carrier to the fall of an empire or the collapse of a civilization it is beyond our scope to trace the sources of this conviction apart from the influences of the hebrew scriptures and some aspects of german idealism it doubtless came simply of the personal experience that life is a fleeting and unsatisfying thing at best and of that broad outlook upon fact and history which seldom fails to dwarf all single episodes and events enough that it stands written broadly on all the carlylean writings so that even he who runs may read it there 
and yet it is this profit of the mutability of empires and civilizations nay of the unsubstantiality of nature herself who is ready to tell a country ditcher that his life is an epic and to remind the world that there is the fifth act of a tragedy on every deathbed though it be on a bed of heath who claims for the day drudge the possibility of writing on the eternal skies the record of a heroic life who honours the hard hand of the mason as much as if it had held a sceptre who is quick to ascribe to a fact how trivial soever it may seem a significance not to be conceded to the greatest creation of imagination who has won from a brother historian the tribute that in historic research he joins to the genius of a poet the care of an antiquary and who more perhaps than any writer of our century has dedicated his powers to preaching the wonder of the dewdrop or the withered leaf does it not seem as if there must be contradiction somewhere now the great world itself is shadow and illusion the dreaming that men call life the mood passes and the hammer or the pickaxe the morning cloud or the hyssop that springeth on the wall has become the theme of a gospel yet contradiction is a word we must not use here for the contradiction vanishes as soon as it becomes apparent that this conviction of mutability written so large upon the carlylean page is not the last word though it may be the first of carlyle's philosophy in point of fact his almost oriental sense of mutability is but the step to a faith which nothing ever shook in the reality and immutability of a world of unseen law if this transition seems startling it is to be borne in mind that it is one which the human mind with an audacity which would pluck belief from doubt and life from the very jaws of death has not hesitated again and again to attempt the prophet the poet the metaphysician the unlettered man even whose spirit has been touched by the hungers and thirsts of religious aspiration have all believed that somehow they could pass this gulf all of them have striven some by the groping trackless ways of mysticism some by firm highway of philosophy to find permanence beyond mutability reality behind illusion being beneath the very flux and nothingness of things carlyle follows them we can read it in his conversations his diaries in all his writings and in none so unmistakably as what he calls not altogether aptly the high platonic mysticism of sartorisartus it was the experience of teufelsdruck as it stands written in sartorisartus for when that platonic mystic rose in protest against the everlasting no and all the world and the fiend had done to crush him it was not to nurse the barren consciousness of an abstract and empty spiritual freedom it was to turn from the corrosive sorrows the maddening obstructions of his own embittered lot to the larger life of the impersonal world to the treasured achievements of ancient cities to the buried valour of world-famous battlefields in a word to the twofold text of the book of revelation the text written in the lives of heroes and the other text of great libraries this was his centre of indifference and small wonder if the passionate egoism of teufelsdruck's earlier years was forgotten 
in the greatness of the spectacle and yet it was not a spectacle only for as he looked upon it with those eyes that looked through clothes till they became transparent intuition struck fire upon experience appearances grew luminous with a new light and through the veil of nature and of the long procession of life the truth dawned that the universe is not dead and demoniacal a charnel house with spectres but godlike and my father's it was so that teufelsdruck passed to the everlasting yea end of section sixteen